Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 79. I'm your host, Brian. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. On this podcast, we take topics relevant to, to get today's gun owners, and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and law enforcement officers. Today, I'm joined by DB, and we're going to talk mindset and the aspects of mindset. But first, today's episode is brought to you by EDC Belt Company, Foundation Belt get yours today at edcbeltco.com ccwsafe.com save 10 percent off your membership when you sign up at checkout enter code off duty 10 for 10 percent off your membership concealed carry podcast giveaway got to sign up weekly to be eligible they're giving away lots of good gear and uh last but not least the guardian conference coming up 16th 17th 18th september in Oklahoma City, sign up now for early bird pricing and law enforcement officers in Oklahoma. We got you 24 hours of complete continuing education this year. Uh, links are always in the show notes. Man, I got through that one really quick. So we're just going to roll right in and bring DB in now. There he is. He's back. Hey, Brian. I'm back. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and the internet goes, what could he do now? What could he say? I'm like back in black multicam. <laughs> hey, by the way, uh, there may be a certain belt company that tracked down some material that has a sample on the way. So, uh, good. Cause I just got my black multicam five eleven kilt today. I'm wearing it right now. Oh, oh. well, I, uh, yeah, this I, is I, how, this is how you know Melanie's out of town because there's a kilt involved. <laughs> no, just because I'm ordering stuff like kilts on. <laughs> <laughs> She's off turkey hunting, you know. You know yeah, congratulations to the <laughs> hunt like a girl crew for tagging what 12, 12 thunder 12 chickens. For 12. Wow, 12 for twelve, like twelve tags, twelve birds. <laughs> that is that is exceptional, and yep. uh, yeah, we got to. Uh, see some of the aftermath of their hunting adventure the oklahoma chapter so go check yeah, them melanie, out melanie whacked a toad <laughs> she got and she, you know she was guiding and got the uh the uh lady she was guiding got her her bird first so you know then it's okay if you you nail a toad <laughs> so. yeah those that was some uh pretty delightful looking uh i think they're I think they're Miriams here. They're either Miriams or Rio Grands. I think they're Rios. Are they? Yeah. yeah. We got we got like three different species in Oklahoma, and some of them intermingle in the same parts of the country. But uh, but either way, uh, yeah. Congratulations to all of them. Had a had a nice dinner with them the other night at Cagle uh, Ranch, and uh, yep. Yep. Just got four birds at the Cagle Ranch and eight in Kansas. So. Wow. I've never You're hunted headed off to another one. Yeah. Oh, so. really? I, I've never oh, hunted turkey in yeah, Kansas. They, uh, yep. They just uh, finished up a Bass Pro one. They got a Barretta one coming up back to back on it at another location. So, yeah, it's a rough life. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> feel poor wife. I feel bad for your wife. I mean, <laughs> no, she's just, just having just to hunting. hunt. Yeah. Well, mindset. Let's talk about the foundation of Colonel Cooper's combat triad. Uh, the baseline, the very, the very foundation upon which uh, the others are built, which is mindset. You know, as I uh, as I get older, 
let's start, you know, delving more into the history side of stuff instead of the thing side of our world. Um, I realized more and more that, yeah, the genius of Cooper, who was a historian himself, uh, very exceptional, you know, uh, student of history. And what he was genius at is putting things together from a variety of sources and, and making kind of a uh, means in which we can diagnose stuff. The safety rules are a good example. And the combat triad is another one. And I found over the years that the more I delve into the combat triad, the more genius it is. So if, you know, traditionally it's looked at as a triangle with uh, mindset marksmanship and some people say manipulations. I like using kind of tactics and gun handling. Pat made a rectangle because it was Pat. He put, you know, gun handling and tactics as two separate things, but equal parts. I just combined it in one so we can still keep a triangle. Um, you know, the reality is that those things all have to be in balance and balance is critical from everything from the business world. Uh, my dad, who's a big kind of business guru preaches, uh, a very similar triad, um, of, you know, on the business side of things that have to be in perfect balance for your business to be successful. It's how he diagnoses problems in people's businesses and how they fix them. So, in our business, um, the combat triad is just one of those genius things that we use to, to balance out what we're doing. And I had sort of an epiphany the other day when I started looking back at people I've mentored under and what made them awesome. And, you know, part of it, when I, when I look back, is there was an aspect to mindset that they all truly mastered that gets very little discussion. So I wanted to, I figured this was a good little topic for us to do today while I've been kind of mulling on it. So I note that there's a fascination um, and social media is really has pushed this to a, a new level with the marksmanship part of the equation, because you can get on YouTube, you can get on Instagram you can get on Facebook and post videos of doing all sorts of really cool, uh, technical shooting skills, marksmanship, you know, tests of marksmanship. Um, same with some of the gun handling stuff, particularly on the manipulation side, uh, doesn't really, um, delve into the tactics side of things, but, but certainly uh, the marksmanship side, the manipulations end of this uh, is getting kind of beaten to death um, because it's something relatively easy to do. You put the work in, you study with the right people, you get the right equipment and a lot of people can do exceptionally good work on those two areas. And now, how how well that relates to the real world is, you know, up for debatable, debate, but yeah. is debatable. But the reality is that that you know people can attain some very incredibly high levels of both marksmanship and manipulation skills. And I've always divided sort of sport shooting, 
the sport shooting combat triad and the uh, street shooting combat triad as two completely different things. If you look in the sports shooting world, they have their own very specific set and you have to have a mastery of it as much as we do on what I focus on. Um, uh, yeah, I give a ton of respect to it. You have to master all three levels um, of you know, match ma- mindset, match marksmanship, match gun handling, period. You know, I mean, you have to master all of those at a high level, and they've got to be in balance. You know, how people go through, uh, you know, stage planning is its whole thing. Uh, you know, what level of accuracy are you going to balance with speed? How they are scored is huge. I watch people diagnose scoring systems and it just baffles the heck out of me, but these folks are masters of it on what, what they need to do in certain places. Um, so it's its own thing. And, uh, you know, hats off to those who are masters of it in our world. Um, we get a little confused on this stuff. We have to have a level of marksmanship that's, contrary to popular belief, particularly with handguns, is not debatable. You need to be able to sink rounds on demand into something about the size of a large orange or a small grapefruit that's either in the uh, upper part of the chest or in the head. That's it. Yeah, and you've, it, you've it, never it, said <laughs> that before, ever, not I know, one I, time, I, right? I'm but that's, yeah, everybody goes, well, whatever your acceptable target is. No, that's your target. That's where it's got to go, or you get to do it again with pistol bullets. The the gun handling and the tactics is going to be, a lot of that's going to be regulated by legal standards in the United States. And again, a lot of people don't want to pay attention to that, but the reality is all of this stuff has to meet that criteria every press of the trigger. So again, we have a whole other set of issues. So this gets down into now when talking about mindset is one of those things is that we can't teach mindset. I can't bring somebody out on a range or put them into an environment where I can be ensured that there's some test I can give them to say that they've mastered mindset. It's not really possible because I don't know what they're going to do when things are flying back the other direction, when they have to make some tough decisions on what type of shots they're going to take or if they will even take them. Um, Where do we draw certain lines on our morals and ethics, our culture, our inner being? And, you know, I tell folks, you can uh, study this stuff. You can uh, prepare yourself better. There's a lot you can do to head down the path. But those who have truly mastered that end have done it. It tends to be extremely experience-based is the testing for mindset is very much in performance, actual real performance. And a lot of people never get the opportunity, thankfully, to test that mindset. Um, You know, it's not a fun process, in all honesty, and it's really not a fun process to get awfully darn good at it because the level of risk that goes with getting good at mindset um, it, it comes with a lot of potential for getting yourself hurt real bad. 
or killed. So you end up in a lot of these situations where a lot of people are going to go ahead and theorize on mindset and they don't really have an aspect to understanding what exactly they're doing. It's sort of fantasy or theory based. So I took a look and I said, you know, really what's, what was the standout thing among the people I mentored under that made their mindset so good? And one factor we never talk about that was really the key for them was knowing when not to shoot. It, it, it's a huge part of the equation because we spend really a most of our training time on shooting. Right. That's sort of or, or you some know, aspect I mean, to get there. Drawing. There, yeah. Whatever. And, you know, right. I mean, we've been doing a lot of classes lately on learning to not shoot and it's sort of a unique thing, but the reality is everybody wants to shoot more faster, but you know, better. It's all about the shooting. So amongst these folks that I have, been around the one thing i really saw over and over and it's something i got particularly good at better at it over time and better at it with uh various applications of lethal force under my belt is the ability to not shoot so in and particularly in situations when you legally could Right. You know, we are faced, law enforcement in particular is faced in a lot of situations where they absolutely could legitimately use lethal force. And I do think part of the problem we're having today is situations are spiraling out of control because the level of force that needs to be used isn't getting used when it should. And then we have situations escalating into where they turn into something horrific. horrific and chaotic that doesn't need to be so the ability to make exceptional shoot no shoot decisions under high levels of stress and chaos and have the ability to calmly make logical well-defined shoot no shoot decisions in those environments to me, is sort of the epitome of reaching that mindset goal of when you've really hit the pinnacle of being a master at what you're doing. Um, most of the folks I know uh, could hold their own in any sort of marksmanship, um, you know, uh, practical, real marksmanship uh, tests. And certainly gun handling and tactics. Now, I mean, it, it, none of it was probably um, at the same level that if we went to the sport shooting or the competitive shooting triad, would these folks wouldn't be all that good at it or, or standouts by any stretch of the imagination. But among street use uh, and practical use, they are masters of their trade. And then combined with the ability to make the decision, yes or no, and to be able to competently articulate that decision in a manner that is based in both law and based in the situation, to me is an incredible feat 
of something you can't train on. You know, there's, there's nobody there to say what's going to be right or wrong. You really have to be able to sit down and post these events afterwards and competently articulate to a level most people will never understand exactly what happened and what went through your mind while you were doing it. And the more you do it, the better people tend to get at it. Um, you know, the problem is now is that we don't encourage people to ever get good at this. Right. And we wonder why we have problems. And then, yeah. and then you run out of people to teach it because those are the folks who really should be teaching this stuff is the ones who can say, look, I've made, you know, hundreds of these decisions or more, you know, under stress. And here's kind of what you need to be looking at to make those decisions. And as I go back and I find, you know, currently, you know, going through just the normal stuff of finding out what other people are doing out there and evaluating techniques and what folks are doing. I, I, I always find myself kind of going back to the type of input I'm getting from people who have, or balancing what folks are telling me I need to do to get great or improve in marksmanship. And the manipulation side, I always try to balance that with what are the real, the true, real mindset experts saying about how it, it works with that aspect. And I think that's kind of one of those things where we sort of lose that because most people really don't have their triangle. Um, they've got a great base. I mean, they've got a great marksmanship and, um, you know, uh, manipulations and gun handling side of the house taken care of, but they're usually often a little light, um, uh, particularly on the people who don't get exposed to it. They can tend to be a little light on the tactics. The people exposed to it all the time are fine on the tactics, but then the top of the, the pyramid is sort of an unfinished thing that hasn't quite been capped yet. Cause they don't know how really, um, you know, they don't know if that that's really intersecting at the top correctly or not. Right. I'm sitting here reading an excerpt from Cirillo while you're, while you're, okay. yeah, <laughs> I, a good place to read an excerpt from. It was one of those, uh, one of those moments that, uh, I, like I literally flipped the book open cause you reminded me of something and it went right to the page. It was, it was almost ordained by the, the universe to uh, happen, <laughs> but, uh, he's talking about people that are self-assured and how their conscious mind will, will perform and, I said, for the rest of us, once self-confidence is achieved by successful performance in succeeding gunfights, most of the stress factor will disappear. By the fourth or fifth gunfight, the most of you may, the most you may feel may be slight excitement, but the first one's a tough one. And it's like, those days are over, man. Like those days don't happen anymore. Yeah, those days don't happen. So. So, so like so you we said, really the need teachers, to be, right? Yeah, we, we really, part of the problem is we, we're, we're losing the ability. We can't talk to Jim Cirillo anymore. We can't put Jim Cirillo into a, in front of a class. We can't have Cirillo sit in front of uh, an academy class or a group of people and discuss this because Jim Cirillo is no longer with us. There's not a whole lot of folks out there who can go, boy, at number five, I was doing pretty well. I mean, you know, by then there's just not a lot of those guys left. 
No, and and most of them by number three, four, they're it's uh, they get benched, and and that's I, and yeah. I understand why. Uh, yeah, I, but, I don't disagree with with doing it because that's where uh, you know I, I I have a saying that you know society deserves the policing. Um, you get the policing you deserve, right? And right now we're not there. Uh, we're not protecting the people who are supposed to be out protecting us. We're we're you know, we've hounded on this enough that, you know, the, we're, we're the leadership uh, politically and the people who are voting those people into uh, positions of making policy have decided that um, 70% at a extremely low standard is all anybody needs. And everybody nods their head and that's what you get. And then we get shocked when we find out it's not. And yeah, I think you and I were talking earlier today and the problem is until we start having uh, uh, police chiefs and sheriffs sitting next to their officers in court, um, when we prosecute an officer for poor use of lethal force is the person who provided them the training for that or was responsible for having them trained uh, is not sitting there with them. So they really don't have much skin in the game as far as changing that. As long as there's some peon on the end of the, that the, at the end of the, uh, you know, hill where the uh, poop is flowing down um, to take the rap for it, that ain't going to change. Well, so the thing I was looking at, you know, we talked about a couple of people uh, that one of our cohorts work, work with and, I mentioned one the other night and I was like, Hey, that dude's a, that dude's a bad dude. He's been mixed up in some really, some really hairy stuff. He's been in multiple gunfights and I'm not talking one way shootings. I'm talking about gunfights. He's not a teacher. He's not one of the guys that's going to show you gun handling. He's not one of the guys that's going to teach you marksmanship. He's not even really a gun guy. If that, if that makes sense. So most of them aren't. So you get the reality is that one's, you know, I've been blessed with having some, and you know what's funny is their guns are tool guys that they've mastered their tools, but most tend not to be um, what we envision mm-hmm. they are. You, right. you know what I mean? Is that he, you know they they're not down in the weeds in this stuff like like we tend to get. It's a rare bird that you get a Cirillo or a Pat Rogers that, that actually starts passing some of that knowledge on, uh, that has the, you know, Cirillo, he harkens back to my, my lineage of, he was a master class PPC shooter. He was a master. He was a national level competition shooter. He was a gun guy. He was a hand loader. And he was a gunfighter, like he was a gunfighter. So it was, yeah. And, and as was his partner Allard. I mean, right, probably right. more so even than Cirillo is. I think if you look on paper, my understanding is right. Allard was the better shooter of the two, which is they're both at a pretty high level. And if you look on the West Coast, if you look at kind of uh, Helms and Mudgett, while not really as competitive. And what's funny is um, Helms will tell you that. Uh, Larry was the better instructor and the better shooter. And Larry will tell you that John was the better gunfighter. 
which right. for two guys with egos like they have that are well earned, you know, yeah, that level of of respect towards each other, um, they're different. They're different birds. Um, they just happen to work real well together. Um, yeah, so, but, you know. but there again, that's you know, you take. I can't remember what it was, but it was something like thirty percent of law enforcement officers end up in in a lethal force. You know, an application to deadly force with a handgun, or you know, it's one of the. Oh, I don't think it's even close to that. I, I can't remember. Actual where shootings? That. No, I think it's uh, seven. Yeah, maybe seventeen yeah, no, it's, or something. It's, it's it, I, my understanding is it's ninety three percent will never be in a shooting. Yeah, um, the, that's you know. So because I've broken some of these figures down now, which goes into. Um, now there's probably a solid percentage that have had opportunity right, to, right. and it, ha- and it, ha- you know, I've gotten awfully close and it hasn't. Um, it's when I tell people, I go, cause breaking this down, I go, you know, if you look and some of those numbers may have changed, but the, at one point, you know, during my career, 93% it will never fire around in the line of duty in the course of their career. And if you look at how many cops are in this country and that, but not a lot of them, Right, uh, kind of doing the whole tip of the spear thing on a daily basis. Um, you then take them, and, and you and I both know this, a, of the 7% that now have been in a shooting, and well, let's just even say 10% for you know, generic for numbers. numbers. Yeah, yeah you, you know, like 9% of those, you and I both know, are going to be an absolute uh, luck, horrible you know, nothing anybody wants to really brag about. Now we'll hand out medals, tell everybody it was awesome. But the reality is um, they were not um, what we call a righteous shooting where it was just, you know, crook did this good guy, did this hammered the guy guys, highly trained, you know, um, your officer, you know, basically um, dominated the fight through sheer skill and, good tactics and all of that. Those are going to come down to about 1% of them that we look at the video and go, there you go. There you go. That's what it's supposed to look like. And that's a very small percent. Then if you try to find the people who have done that multiple times of those righteous shootings, because that's what I tracked down to do my, my, my study thing is rather than looking at all the failures, I, tried to track down some of the ones that not only did they knock it out of the park on one, they knocked it out of the park on multiples and some of them into double digits. So you're looking at people who are exceptional at this. You're talking about a micro percentage of our law enforcement people out here. And then if you want to try to get into the uh, citizen world, there isn't even going to be a percentage Um, that you can really look at on this. And then when you look at that microcosm of, of, uh, police officers that have been involved in multiple righteous shootings that were, you know, uh, and that none of them are perfect, but, but either way you look at those and then you look at a guy that possesses, who's a, you know, a gun guy, very small percentage, who's a, an instructor that's, you know, of some high level, I guess you'd say doctrine or schooling that, that actively teaches that 
smaller percentage. I mean, you're talking a handful of dudes, maybe five, 10 in the country. Right. Um, and you know, what's funny is that most of these people now, um, and I know a lot of them, they're sort of my, you know, mm-hmm. circle of stuff, you know, the Jared Reston's out there and, and, and some others like that. Most of the time it's funny. Cause we get, we hear from roundabout ways that we're all sort of preaching the same stuff and nobody really wants to listen. You know, it's not, you know, because it's not what, uh, every, it's not what everybody can do. So everybody can go put the work in, put the round counts down range, make the money investment into ammo range time, uh, take the time away from their family and their lives to train on the marksmanship and manipulation side. So that's all anybody wants to talk about. You're just not going to have a lot of people out there who can go, Hey, here's what's going to actually happen in that thing. And here's some of the things you need to contend with. It's, it's not uh, because it's such a unique thing that requires uh, sort of doing a a crappy underpaid job that you have to be passionate about. Uh, You have to love the job. That's not going to love you back to be able to kind of do this. Um, not a lot of, not a lot of interest in that. Um, so, you know, of course it, it, it makes sense to not really pay attention to it for most people because, you know, they play it, pay it lip service, but they're not really, um, that it gets dismissed a lot because it, it, as human beings and just our egos don't really often allow us to go. Yeah, I don't know anything about that, so maybe I should listen to these people. It just doesn't. Um, it, it's a step you gotta you gotta get over, and you know that's part of the uh, you know obviously spending the weekend you know where I did you know it's the topic of discussion is yeah you know, the mentorship process yeah you know, the apprenticeship process is sort of a dying thing you know now as you go to your your whatever organization they hand you a piece of paper that says instructor and go to work you know you're you're now a you're now an instructor you got a piece of paper says so um rather than what used to happen which is you had to spend a significant amount of time proving yourself being sort of the the uh you know lower than the whale feces on the range thing to kind of begin an apprenticeship process that's sort of becoming a lost art everywhere um you know that used to be the way uh any uh professional trade sort of worked uh it's you know again the it's it's sort of one of these things that's a i think again it's sort of the technology thing this is sort of one of the side effects we don't we're still working out because in the old, because, you know, prior to sort of the internet, you, you just didn't have the information available on your phone. Right. You know, for somebody who was say a welder or something, you couldn't, you know, you, you had to know the formulas, the metal, you, know, you, you had to know what you were doing uh, with heat and metal consistency and how things work. And, and you know, I don't know a thing about welding. I just know that all of that's important. And, you know, people spent years learning how to do that. Well, you know, now, I, I mean, I could Google up, you know, welding material on temperature on my phone, and it'll tell me what that is without me having to be in a multi-year apprenticeship program well, to think, do that. I think there's some good and some bad that we're ironing out, but uh, the mindset part, 
you know, I mean, I'm watching these kids that are 22, 23 years old that are doing stuff with handguns that they would have all won the steel challenge in the eighties. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like they're absolutely, they're, yeah, they're, it's they're, phenomenal. It, it's, it's and, you amazing. Know, it's funny. I'm just, and, and, you know, I just sit here now and I go, awesome for you. Uh, you know, I'm not going to de- no. denigrate it, whatever. I'm just going to go awesome for you. Um, like a lot of things, um, we have made huge progress on some of the physiology, some of the equipment, uh, some of the training protocols. Um, we've beaten to death down some of the myths that have occurred. Now, in that process, we've sort of lost some of the truths or the we have certainly lost some lies. But I mean, I just saw it getting posted today, you know, some some old, you know, cop. You know, well, you can't see your sights in a gunfight. You know, okay, um, you can. Uh, we know you can. Um, there was a time in the 1920s when we had long action Smith and Wessons and K frames with fixed sights on them, and know what you couldn't see the rear sight until uh, the gun got cocked. You couldn't see your sights because the hammer was in the way of the sights. Or, you know, in cases, if you look at like, you know, a Colt 1903 pistol or even the old 1911s or whatever, the sights were so minuscule, you couldn't really see them anyway. So there was some truth to that. Uh, not anymore. Quick, <laughs> you yeah. know? quick, and, uh, quick so side you really note. Can. I got a quick side note on K-Frame Smiths. Uh, one came through the gun shop many years ago, and we're looking at this long action M&P, you know, and it was Ridge's beat. And I noticed the hammer, the rear notch of the hammer, somebody had taken a triangular file and filed a notch in it. And everybody said, what do you think that's for? And I said, this was some dude that knew what he was doing because he opened up a notch that was in line with the rear sight. And I was like, this was a gunfighter gun, dude. Yeah, he made a rear sight out of the hammer. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and you know, that was sort of, if you think about it, you, you, you know how we originally trained back then. Well, you know, you shot double action without sights and you shot single action. You know, if you had time, you cocked the thing and you used the sights. And if it was up close and personal, you just yanked through that double action and kind of (laughs) hang it out there, you know, because couldn't see them anyway. So, but again, this stuff, you know, then this stuff gets, you know, handed down a failure for, you know, another century. And we still got folks believing it. I just had a conversation today with a very quite competent uh, red dot shooter. And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about is, you know, at close range, people have a lot of difficulty with the um, sights. You know, his thing is I have to see a sight on anything. He's a USPSA shooter. So, yeah. you know, he goes, you know, we shoot stuff at three yards, five yards. He goes, I have to find the dot on every shot, no matter what we're doing, because I need it for reading the shot. You know what yeah. I mean? It's There's yeah. a whole process. So to say you can't do it, the problem I'm seeing is, you know, that dude shoots every day. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there going, you know, the problem comes in is we got cops out there with red dots right now, um, that are qualifying once a year. Maybe they're shooting the gun two, three times cause they're, they're training on their own. So they're shooting a gun two or three times a year. And we're shocked that they're not seeing that red dot and yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, is you know, and, and he even said and again, this is one of the most uh prolific uh you know supporters of red dots going those guys probably have iron sights because they're not trained enough to always put that dot in the eye line. 
where it needs to be, you know? So again, this is again, a learning process, um, that, you know, we're back to, you know, uh, gear. Right. (laughs) We we, we toddled into a rabbit hole there. Yeah. If we put a red (laughs) dot on it, it'd be fine. But you know, and it kind of goes back to the mindset though, that now we think, you know, this will make everything better. You know, and what I find particularly on the long guns is now we're putting, now we want to watch television. So being, it's really kind of hard to find when I only shoot a couple times a year. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run that red dot in my eye line all the time. Yeah. Which like lights and lasers on these things means you're pointing guns at all sorts of things that shouldn't get point. And it goes back again to the mastery on the mindset side is knowing when, which includes when to commit a felony assault on somebody legally and justified doing that. <laughs> you know, the, the, I was scared. I'm a scared. Uh, it is probably not one of those things that it was, you know, I, I'm, if you walked into the interview and go, you know, I, I'm just not comfortable with my training program at the police department or as a citizen, you know, with ammo shortages and yeah, I just don't have the money to train. Uh, so I went ahead and go, go was pointing the gun at stuff because, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm scared. I won't be able to find you know, it ain't going to fly. Yeah. But, you know, if you told the truth, it ain't going to fly, uh, as justification, but we have, we still have, you know, these expectations of it. Um, that I actually agree with. I don't like getting guns pointed at me for no apparent reason, nor what I wanted as my children or spouse or anything else. Pats, you know, um, the, <laughs> God help you. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, the, yeah, it, the, the mindset part, you know, when I, when I hear people teach it, uh, it, it immediately goes to the, the color coded, you know, Cooper's color code and it like yeah, stops yeah. there. And I, you know, I, I kind of, I was, I was in a training deal with Ernest Langdon and he talked about mindset quite a bit. And he said, you know, competition mindset is I'm going to go perform at the level I need to perform to achieve what I want to achieve. Um, he said combative mindset is I've made peace with the fact that I could die doing this and I'm going to perform knowing that that is the, that's the, the price or that's the ultimate, uh, uh, I can't even, I, I don't even remember how he said it, but it was very poignant. Yeah, but see, and that's, and so again, you get into, that's the shoot decision is, you know, I'm going into this with the, if I make a wrong shoot decision, you know, and everything that goes along with correctly doing that, I can get killed. Well, it is the process. If I make the wrong and the one nobody wants to talk about, and that's where I've seen this mastery occur if I'm able to competently make the right non-shoot decision, I'm not going to suffer any post-incident. You know, it's better to handle the post-incident legal part of the equation that is a huge part of the equation. It's something that you, you know, you know, my favorite thing is everybody who loves to just sit there and go, well, I'd rather be carried by or tried by 12 than carried by six. Well, Okay, because prison ain't fun for people who ain't good at prison. Yeah. You know, you know, I really kind of don't want to do either. 
Right. And in, in, in all honesty, so so let's try to train to not do either. Yeah, um, the, the other <laughs> the other aspect of what Ernest talked about was, you know, it, with the combative mindset, is he was like, you can do everything right, and everything can still go wrong, and you can still die. And yeah, uh, bad guys get lucky too. Well, and <laughs> he's, know, he's, he we, said, we have a lot of good guys getting lucky. Uh, bad guys get lucky too. Um, he was talking about, yes. you know, he's like, if you're in a Humvee and somebody lobs a, a, a 50 cal round through the windshield, you could be doing everything absolutely right. You could have the right mindset, the right equipment and the right tools. And the one round that lands in the right place will end it all for you with a quickness and accepting that that is, uh, a potential outcome, uh, it is part of the combative mindset. So, you know, I, I only lost one trainee over my career. The people that I I had as a training officer who were killed in the line of duty, um, Eric Tellen, uh, exceptional kid, um, just an exceptionally, uh, big strapping, good looking, you know, kid who was, uh, you know, potential be an incredibly good cop. And he left our agency and went back home to where he was from up in Northern California. And he ended up getting killed as a sheriff's deputy on a fire. Um, some, you know, POS, uh, you know, um, prison converted Muslim, uh, escaped from a, uh, fire crew broke into a house rifle in there and when eric and his partner made entry the guy was laying underneath the table um and shot him in the chest which i believe was with a 30-06 as he's coming in number two through the door it was one of those cases where he didn't do a thing wrong you know tactically didn't do there wasn't one thing wrong with anything he did um and he still ended up getting killed because it's the nature of the beast that even, you know, and that's, and that's the problem is, you know, and then, you know, we get, like I said, we get a bunch of people out there that we're building tactics off of absolute sheer, sheer luck. So, you know, when you kind of accept that that luck goes both ways, uh, you need to kind of, you know, mentally prepare for it. Uh, but it's a, it's a tough place to base a lot of what we do on and sadly a lot of a lot of policy is made on luck we have a lot of uh training out there that is based on uh the luck factors uh which is one of those things that we really kind of can't scientifically replicate so we probably should take it out of training programs and certainly the basis of training programs well i but, I, I had a recent occasion i sat in uh eric and uh john dobbs lecture at TACCON, and uh on the the armed citizen mindset side, uh, John Dobb really hit something over the, he hit something over the back fence. Uh, and he said, I, I had already made the decision beforehand about where my line was at. And everybody was like, what, like your line in the sand. And he goes, no, the line that I was not going to let someone cross period. And he said, you know, up until that, we can, we can have conversations. We can fist fight. We can do whatever, but there is a finite line that I stood on. And he said, and I had made that decision years before that this is why I'm training. This is why I'm getting 
as much information as I can to help me make that line very defined and very, um, I won't say flexible, but he, he, he mentioned, and it, if you get a chance and you're at TACCON to see his lecture on his yeah. defensive shooting, it made a ton of sense with police officers. There's that line shifts and it varies a bit because we're not necessarily always defending ourselves. Right. So, well, you know, usually when I'm doing my um, description of how I teach, you know, threat assessment and stuff in the evaluation mm-hmm. phase, you know, I always say, you know, U.S. military personnel in a conventional uh, war really don't have much on the evaluation side. It's either the people over there or the ones wearing the uniforms that don't look like ours are pretty much good to go. Right. Um, for the armed citizen inside of their home, the evaluation phase in a lot of places has been set in legal structure that by the nature of somebody being there, that's not one of yours, is a line on its own that is crossable. You know what I mean? Is that you can, right. they've, 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 they've assisted your mindset in helping make that decision. And I said, you know, the problem with the cops is, is they have to spend extra time in the evaluation phase more than they really should have to. Um, how many of these crooks meet the standard for use of lethal force and don't get shot because of politics, uh, just the feeling in the air, whatever societal expectations, certain um, factors that push those evaluation phase way past where it should go. And one of the things I tell my students is, and as soon as you become a citizen who walks out the front door of your house carrying a firearm in public, you get to get held to those kind of standards too. And it becomes important, it really important to really understand. And again, this gets back to the mindset, not so much on the bottom rung of the actual manipulation and firing of the, the firearm. It's the when. And that is an ever-changing um, event that we have to deal with. And, you know, the more you do it, the easier it becomes, Um you know, we all know, you know, your first first phase of FTO training, it's one giant mistake of <laughs> doing things wrong, uh, hopefully being supervised by somebody who doesn't let it go too far. Um, but, you know, I, it, you know, I've had a couple that are really easily defined on mine. A, a perfect example, the, uh, you know, the shooting I was in with the carjackers, you know, I'm outnumbered, you know, they're armed. And by myself in the middle of the night, you know, sitting there with an 870 laying across my lap. And I pretty much made the decision to get one freeze police and anything other than surrendering. It's going to start getting loud because just the situation. And we had some time to make that. Um, recently, that situation, Melanie and I were in with the uh, dude trying to rob us. You know, once I kind of deployed the pepper spray and he saw that and decided not to attack and then started wandering off and then came back and you can see he made the decision. You can just see it in his face that I'm going to go ahead and eat the pepper spray. Mm -hmm. And then he saw the gun. 
Right. And yeah, because I had made the decision, look, I'm, I'm pushing 60 years old. Um, I'm not going to, I can't beat this guy in a fight anymore. It's the reason I'm carrying pepper spray. I'm held together with literally with string at this point in my life. Um, that if he gets through the pepper spray, I'm shooting him. And it was a clearly defined, you know, uh, in my mind, the thing is I've done it a lot. Yeah, so it comes pretty quick these days and without a whole lot of uh, internal debates on it. For a lot of people, um, you know, listening to Melanie's take on it, which kind of was her first rodeo, was like, my God, that was scary, chaotic, a lot of stuff going on. And this isn't easy. Yep. (laughs) It's, you know, and a lot of people really overestimate their ability to do this stuff. And, you know, that's why I would like to see, you know, kind of the point of wanting to do this podcast is how much, how much mental work are people putting in to really, really delve deep mentally into the shoot, no shoot decision um, because it's critically important. Um, and it may end up being really the most important uh, aspect of what we do. Um, yeah. Kind of none of the other stuff's going to matter if that one's wrong. I uh, actually, if you get it wrong, hope for a miss. <laughs> you know, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, hopefully it'll be a no harm, no foul um, for for screwing that one up. Something something I learned years ago in in shooting competition, and it's 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 paid dividends on the police world. Um, was and I it sounds cheesy, but it was all about visualization. And it's like playing mental chess with yourself. I was the king of it. <laughs> and and yeah, I'll give it. I agree hundred ex- percent. I know where you're going. I agree hundred percent. Give yep. it. I give the example. Um, I got in this car chase. This is almost twenty years ago now, and it was on a one mile stretch of road that we all drove all the time. It was Section Eight and low income housing on both sides of the street. Lots of criminal activity. Lots of violent crime. This is in the heyday of the one pot methamphetamine cooks. I mean, it was just, <laughs> yeah. it was a sporty time, right? We and, called them the innocent butthead labs. Right. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so I would drive this stretch of road and I'd get gas there. And every day I would envision at some point, a stolen car is going to pop out of one of these and the chase is going to be on. And every day I would sit there and I would think about what am I going to do? I'm going to pick up the radio. I'm going to set it my, or my, my hand mic in my lap. I'm going to drive this way. This is how I'm going to take this corner, that corner, this, you know, if they bail out here, I give this, if they bail out here, I say this. And I would go through this a hundred times a day. It seemed like it was just constantly in my mind. And, oh, well, if they turn right here, I'm going westbound on whatever. Um, and then one day it happened. And my supervisor, after it was all said and done, he goes, dude, are you all right? I said, yeah, why? And he said, well, you sounded like you were ordering dinner. And yeah. I said, I said, I've, I've had this, I've had this car chase a hundred times. And he goes, did you not let me know you were involved in other cat? You know, of course the admin <laughs> yeah, thing. And yeah, I go, yeah. I go, no, like mentally I have played this out in my mind. I cannot tell you how many times. And he goes, well, I guess it worked. Good job. Now impound the car and get back to work. Like, uh, all right, cool. Right. But, um, same thing with, you know, we're approaching a, a door and there's a bad guy behind it. 
and we have to order them out or then go in and get them. And I would play the scenario out. Okay. What's my, you know, where are my hands on the gun? Where's the gun pointed? Where are my partners at? What's going to happen if the door opens before we get there? You know, what's my nearest cover? What's my nearest route to get out to, you know, all these things I would play in my mind constantly. And I find myself now when I'm not playing for the, the team, that is a constant, it, it constantly plays in my mind. Okay, if there's a bad incident here, where's the exits? What do my sights look like in line with a bad guy? Imagine what that looks like. You know, yeah, you know, I, I had a term for it. I called it tactical daydreaming. <laughs> I love it. So, I love it. Yeah, I, I literally drive around and think think up scenarios of this. Or, you know, that call comes over the radio or you're, your computer. And I, I'd start with like, what's the worst thing that can happen? I pull up, the car starts exploding in glass, you know, um, you know, with the, the, the ambush from hell. And then you start going backwards too. And then somebody runs up and asks you for directions to the airport, right? you know? So, um, or, you know, gee officer, where's the best place in town to get a burger? You know? So I would play these scenarios out and, and do it all the time. And, you know, that was sort of part of the job. I can tell you when you're doing that daily thousands of times for decades and, and, and honestly, not all cops do it. Um, no. You know, that's part of the problem. That was, you know, it used to be something I would teach my trainees and you'd watch the light go on with some and others would be like, this is BS. And I really just want to get out of this guy's car, you know, cause he's weird. Um, okay. You know, um, there, there takes all kinds, but you know, for us, that's what we spend a lot of mental effort doing. And again, back to the concept of this is you're, you're basically sitting there making forced decisions in your head to sort of send a mental map of where we're going to go. It's almost like looking at, you know, you're getting ready to take a trip and, you know, you look at the GPS or you look at Google maps and you go, well, I'm, you know, this one's dark blue. I'm going to go this way, but here's an alternate route. And then just in case that doesn't work and you know, over here. So you kind of, you know, you're doing sort of the same thing every day. And then there's other people who, you know, go on a trip and they, they just plug the location in. And when Google maps drives them off a cliff, they just go. Uh, Cause they never, you know, well, I'll just Google maps will take care of it. You know, I guess when you came from the days of Thomas guides, you know, that it's a different world. And, uh, you know, your parents with their, you know, fold out, uh, AAA maps. If you actually had a dad who would stop and get a map, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> John, it's funny. You mentioned mental maps. You know, I had John Hearn on a while back and that was one of the things that he's very, very keen on is interjecting yourself into the most you know, mentally into training scenarios, et cetera, so that you develop those mental maps before they become directions that get you lost in the woods. Right. Right. And you know, the, the, the problem is, is, you know, again, we go back to where are you getting your mental maps from? So it goes back to, again, we have people out there who have mastered explorations <laughs> you know who have who have been down a lot of paths with this stuff making very very difficult decisions of shoot no shoot are we really looking to them or are we looking to get the knowledge of where things are located from people who have never done it before 
right. based on based on when you Google what what's most popular. Uh, that's that's the state of affairs we're in. You know, there's a lot of people out there getting some really crappy directions um, on these subjects because there's just not a lot of people who have been to these places before regularly. Um, you know, I'm sure you're in the same boat as I am. I used to be quite comfortable rolling up to people that most people would avoid um, for, hey, where's the best place to eat? You, you know, the people who know that yeah. are often not the most desirable people you want to roll up and talk to, um, but they're local. They've done it. A, they've done it a lot. They they know the lay of the land, and we just don't have a lot of people out there who kind of really good at knowing the lay of this land, of making these kind of force decisions exceptionally well, consistently, and over time. And it just goes to kind of thinking that maybe we should be spending more time with this, and maybe we should be asking what people's experience is on making those decisions. You know, I was on another podcast the other night and I, I kind of opened it with, I'm going to preface this with, I have been out of law enforcement now for 15 years. Yeah. You know, that's a long time to be yeah. just basically I'm back to being an armed American, uh, which is significant. I just happen to have a couple of decades of doing some pretty high level force stuff before that, so my, my take on things might be a little different, but I have rethought a lot of what I do because my position in the world is different. I'm not required to go to other people's emergencies anymore. Um, you know, if you dial 911, I'm not coming. No. So, <laughs> you know, and there's probably not a lot of things I'm responding to anyways, even if you, you on somebody else's problem. So, Again, for me, it's been a huge mindset reset. And it's what I talk about a lot is trying to wrap your head around what's actually important. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to go to prison for? Um, you know, I had this conversation again. This came up today, I guess, the uh, with all these bicycle thefts, you know, that are going on in Oakland, you know, weird. Mm. Um, you know, people are out, you know, on their mountain bikes and kind of the, the you know, uh, outdoorsy area surrounding Oakland and, you know, you know, criminals are stealing their stuff. Weird that when you have a justice system like they do out there. So, you know, one of the things was, you know, a scenario was presented to me. Oh, you're out with your, you know, you're out riding your bikes with your dog and stuff and come up. And, you know, my thing was, you know, I, I, I was, you know, pretty, pretty huge in the mountain bike world in my time. And, uh, you know, handing over a 5000 three to $5,000 bike's not easy. But it's certainly cheaper to get into shooting over it Yeah, in the big picture. And, you know, that's a different thing. Now, you try to take the dog. <laughs> I did. God's honest truth. I'm going to, you know, and, and, you know, and that was part of, that was a serious conversation today about that. I go, you know, the, the sadly, the law looks at your dog as a piece of property. It looks at the dog as no different than you know a car radio or anything else it's why we always had kind of a problem with the on the le side with our canines you know is they're still they're not really the status of an officer when they're being shot and stabbed and the response to that so it's that those have always been a different thing and you know i kind of said you know you want to talk about lines 
if you're going to, if it's going to, you know, I'll give you any piece of hard property I can replace, but I'll tell you what, what I know is going to happen to what is basically a part of our family. Mm -hmm. I think you can kind of sell that to a jury is that you're going to start drawing lines on that. I know that when you take that animal, it's going to get thrown out. Cruelty is going to happen, torture, whatever. And, you know, these might be some lines I'm willing to cross or that I'm going to take into account on a decision. But are we, are we thinking about these kind of decisions of where these lines are and having a discussion, even if it's with ourselves, you know, well before the event occurs or, you know, we're not even thinking about it. And I think the problem is um, I've said a lot in the past that one of the things almost every cop I've ever interviewed post shooting was what actually happened. Wasn't close to what they ever envisioned happening um, there. They, they've never really, they had never on their first shooting in particular, they'd never thought the level of chaos, problem solving, difficulty of making decisions, the stuff that floated into their head. There was, you know, all of these things that were never quite what they envisioned were going to happen. You know, we all sort of, okay, I'm going to walk up on the car and the guy, will throw, you know, somebody will pull a gun in the car and then it turns into that. I mean, we all have that, you know, thing for, uh, citizens out here, armed citizens. It's, you know, I go to the ATM and then some bad guy comes up with a gun and I turn around and I do my one second AIWB draw and shoot the bad guy. And, you know, they all have this thing envisioned on what it's going to be. And you know what? It's never really like that. Um, which is why stuff requires a lot of fluctuation and some generalities to the thought process but you want to start at least laying down what your sort of personal things are on those red lines. And are they based in law and maybe have a better understanding of it beforehand on some articulations so that you're better able to make these decisions and sort of setting that, you know, maybe we should be spending more time thinking about force decisions than if, you know, you need, if one compensator is better than the other. Yeah. For my daily carry pistol, you know, that's, that might be, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sit there for, you know, invest in hours and hours and hours of compensator comparisons and spend very little time on deep diving force decisions. Yeah, that's uh, th- that's one of the reasons I uh, I recently made the big jump to uh, tactical Tupperware with a set of sights on it. Is I wanted to I, I would I kept diving so deep into the gear rabbit holes that I was like, really, in the grand scheme of things, it's a tool. Let's let's go back to making that a tool. Like it's let's take the and I'm all for you know customizing your your favorite uh piece or whatever and you know gucci it up get after it guys i don't care like it's you know you're supporting american business great good on you right yeah Uh, but for me it was like i need to take a step back away from the gear and reevaluate how i think through things how i you know okay i got the i got the marksmanship side and the gun handling side down let's look back into the 
the mindset thing, which I think is why I'm rereading Cirillo's book and uh, some of the other stuff that's out there. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you go back over this stuff and you kind of look at it a little differently over time. You know, some of these tomes that are out there need need to get revisited over time of Mm -hmm. looking at stuff a little differently. Um, You know, there was a discussion today on the Internet about – you know, Holloway's Raiders, you know, with the mm-hmm. Dallas shotgun squads, you know, there's a lot in there uh, to take. And, you know, I got, I was blessed. I got to spend pretty much a, about a solid hour talking to one of the guys who was a member of that. And he was the guy who he's mentioned in the book because he didn't shoot one of the bad guys because he gave up mm-hmm. and was heavily chastised for it. You know, it was kind of interesting having a conversation with these guys. But, you know, certainly different time, different standards, but where their brains were at to really delve into these things. And, you know, folks like that are treasures. You know, when you get time with them or read their books, we get some understanding of where their brains were at. And, you know, oftentimes we'll first read these things with kind of an interest in what we're interested in. God, kind of Cirillo carry. You know, what kind of holsters were they using? You know, what was, you know, and then, you know, as time goes on and you start getting some of this, uh, you know, depth, you start going back and going, you know, I want to reread some of this or I want to reinvestigate some of these with what was the mindset like and where did that develop from or what, what maybe I can get some takeaways on that. Um, you know, the best guy I've ever found, and, you know, you know just because of the nature of our world, uh, it's everybody else isn't ever going to get this. Is uh, There's never going to be a book. There's never going to be a, a sit-down or a podcast. But, I mean, there is no better guy than I've ever found than Helms. So, it's just, it's just you, you, you know, you can't get it. And... Um, I'm reading a Musashi book right now. And again, you're just sitting there depth of this stuff that where these guys heads at and historically. So if you could swore right on the hour, if you could like throw a mindset book or resource out there, I know very few people will ever have access to John Helms. It just it's just a matter of of fact, right? There's there's yeah, you know, any of these these folks who are really good at this, any of the books out there, um, if you read them the right way, uh, are great. So Tales from the Stakeout Squad, you know, the Jim anything with the the Jim Cirillo stuff is uh-huh. great. Um, the uh, Frank Hamer book, the more recent one, uh, I think Bodecker is exceptional um you know there's been a couple with uh the nypd anti-crime units that are out there uh that are real good uh the holloway uh you know the books about um the uh, hall street shooting and uh the uh, holloway raiders books uh, about dallas great uh a lot of the stuff if you go back and can find the the books about um, all this came out of the twenties and thirties. So anything of that generation, Frank Hamer, uh, you know, kind of the people who were pretty well, you know, Jelly Bryce, the established lawmen of those eras. Um, there's a lot there. 
recently uh, wooden leg, <laughs> which was like the last surviving guy on the Indian side, on the Native American side from the Custer, uh, from the Battle of Little Bighorn. I pulled more great stuff out of there. Some of this is going back and just warrior tomes read from a mindset standpoint rather than a sort of geary standpoint, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, the, the two that really stand out to me are the art of war by Lao Tzu and the book yes. of five rings by Musashi. When you read, when, especially if you've been in, if you've been in the defensive mindset or the, uh, you know, you've chosen to carry your sword of the day. Um, that one, if you read it in context, really sums up that not a whole lot of this has changed ever. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, some of this stuff, I'm, I'm going to just warn people, and that's why it, it, it's a difficult time. These books are difficult to read. Mm-hmm. They're, a lot of them are not entertaining. I mean, the, the book I'm reading right now, is a historical book from a guy who's an expert translator about truly uh, Musashi's life as opposed to outside the Book of Five Rings on sort of all the lead-ups to these things described in that. And they're very, very difficult to follow. They take a long time to read because they'll literally put you to sleep with a lot of nonfiction. Um, The Wooden Leg book was a tough read because, you know, most of it was like, you know, uh, we raided crows, camps uh we uh, stole horses we shot buffalo or you know went on buffalo hunt you know we moved moved the camp you know it was kind of this mundane thing but intermixed in there were some incredible gems and you know so i think the uh, the long lost art of reading uh is a a way to find this, but it's not always in the most traditional places you would think you would find it. Um, you have to get into these sort of historical books and take them apart from how does this apply to my world? What lessons can I take as opposed to the, um, you know, just, well, this is old stuff that's not applicable because it's, you know, people on the plains with Indians or, right. you know, the ancient samurai or Vikings or whatever that is. Um, just taking this stuff apart from um, how did these uh, similarities on these warrior societies and how they did things, how, how does it apply to me in today's you know, tech-based world? And uh, there's some gems in there. And, you know, some of the great stuff, mentorship, apprenticeship, um, you know, these challenges, they're, they're, you know, proven things that we're getting away from. All right. Thanks DB for coming back. Mindset, man, that's a deep rabbit hole. Reminder, if you haven't checked out today's sponsors, EDC Belt Co and CCWSafe.com. Off duty 10. Remember off duty 10 gets you 10% off your membership and, uh, a little pro tip, uh, if you go to edcbeltco.com, carry trainer, our buddy Mickey Shook might have a deal for you. Uh, if you go to his uh, social media, there may or may not be a discount code there. I'm just saying, don't uh, don't carry a gun in agony. Get comfortable with an EDC Beltco Foundation belt. Uh, and the Guardian Conference. Guys, if you haven't already, I've said it before, the early bird special. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't been to the Oklahoma City Gun Club, reach out to one of those uh, people that you know that came to Guardian last year, you know, maybe make it an RV trip or something. 
It's a cool facility. Thanks, Susie Rouse. She uh, ran into her for lunch the other day. It's so, oh, and the Concealed Carry Giveaway. Links in the show notes. Sign up weekly. The Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions. Follow all firearm safety rules. Consult with a competent firearms instructor and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.